Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our sold-out live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. Uh, It's my great pleasure to introduce Adam Becker, the author of What is Real? Um, And we are going to have a, a conversation tonight about quantum mechanics, First, we're going to talk about the quest, which he talks about, the quest for meaning in quantum mechanics. And then we're going to talk about the main question, which he asked, which is, what is real? So, Adam, to get started, uh, Monday Night Philosophy, uh, this series that we have, we like to ask big questions, and you've obviously asked the biggest question there is, what is real? Um, so, as I said, we'll, we'll split it in two, and first we'll do the quest and what went on with the quest. Sure. Um, so, I think the, a good place to start is to tell a little bit about Niels Bohr, the influence of logical positivism, this, this philosophical theory in Vienna, um, and also the Copenhagen interpretation, just to kind of lay it all out. Yeah. You can just roll with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's clearly a small and easy, you know, attractable <laughs> question that you've asked me there. Very specific and pointed with a short answer. Um, yeah, so, so basically, uh, in, the, in the early 20th century, really at the very end of the 19th century, it became clear that the theories of physics that we had at the time were not sufficient for explaining the behavior of the fundamental constituents of matter, um, you know, the stuff in the world around us, like uh, uh, atoms. Uh, so a new kind of physics started to be developed called quantum mechanics. And by the end of the first quarter of the 20th century, we had this theory sort of in hand. There was a complete, robust theory of quantum mechanics that accounted for basically all the phenomena known in the quantum world. And uh, this theory has been very, very successful, uh, but it's not clear what it tells us about the world around us. And the standard sort of answer to questions like, what does quantum physics say is in the world? What's the, what's the nature of the world? What are the things in the world and how do they behave? The usual answer to a question like that is uh, sort of, uh, that's a stupid question. Don't ask that question. <laughs> it's not a good question. Um, which, you know, is, is unsatisfying, but maybe not the worst possible response, right? The theory <laughs> works really well. Yeah. Um, and so if the theory works well, it's okay if there's, you know, some conceptual vagueness. But... Uh, but when you take that, that statement of don't ask that question and change it from we don't have a good answer to that's a bad question, mm-hmm. that's when you start getting into dangerous territory. And that's sort of what Niels Bohr, one of the founders of quantum mechanics and uh, his followers at his school in Copenhagen, uh, said about quantum mechanics uh, starting in the 1920s and going forward. Uh, into the the post-war period. So this became known as the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, which um, is kind of a a misnomer because it's really an anti-interpretation rather than saying this is what, this is the the way to interpret what quantum physics is telling us about the world. It says, don't worry about interpreting what quantum physics tells us about the world. That's not a question we should be asking. That's an unscientific question. It's a meaningless question uh, or some variant thereof. Um, so as for logical positivism, that was, that was a philosophical movement, as you said, sort of pioneered in Vienna at roughly the same time, which had, I guess, I guess I'd say sympathetic positions to this, this Copenhagen interpretation. It's not right to say, oh, the Copenhagen interpretation was, uh, founded on like a foundation of logical positivism. Um, but they were, they were certainly, you know, drinking the same Kool-Aid or something. Like that. Uh, <laughs> um, so the, the, the logical positivists said things like, well, you know, uh, science isn't really about the world. It's about, uh, our perceptions of the world and, um, or, or rather just about our perceptions and organizing our perceptions. And if you have a scientific theory that, that can accurately predict future perceptions given past perceptions, then that's, that's enough. That's all. You don't need to postulate, you know, stuff in the world behind these things. Um, that's sort of a cartoon parody of what the <laughs> positivists were saying. Right. 
But that's also kind of what the people in Copenhagen took from positivism and ran with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so they sort of had this um, somewhat philosophical uh, uh, justification for this position that they had. Uh, and um, positivism didn't fare terribly well, especially after World War II. But by that point, the physics community and the philosophy community had diverged. Mm-hmm. And uh, the physicists never really got the memo. um so you're kind of saying that there was something rotten in the state of denmark from a philosophical (laughs) point of view yeah something like that okay um one of the things that everyone argued about was schrodinger's cat experiment maybe yeah i think a lot of people here are probably familiar with it but maybe you can just talk a little bit about this issue and oh sure yeah uh, um so if you take this sort of uh, position that, oh, we don't need to worry about what's going on in the world, all that matters is our perceptions, and, and it's meaningless to talk about what's going on when we're not looking, um, there's a lot of problems with that kind of position. And Erwin uh, Schrodinger, another one of the founders of quantum mechanics, put together this Schrodinger's cat thought experiment basically to flag up the problems mm-hmm. with that way of thinking about the world and thinking about physics. So he said, okay, uh, say that you put a cat in a box – And you also put um, a small vial of very slightly radioactive metal. Mm -hmm. And then you you set up this kind of Rube Goldberg contraption where you have a a Geiger counter pointing at the slightly radioactive metal. And then that's hooked up to a little hammer, which is suspended over a vial of cyanide. So if uh, if the Geiger counter detects any radiation, then the hammer will fall and the vial will smash and the cyanide will kill the cat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so then you, you put all this in the box and you seal the box and, um, and then you wait, uh, say half an hour, which, you know, given the kind of radioactive material that you put in there means that there's a 50, 50 chance that the Geiger counter will go off in that time. So there's a 50, 50 chance that when you open the box, you'll find a dead cat or a living cat, or well, I guess a hundred percent chance that you'll find one or the other, uh, <laughs> but fifty-fifty for either one. So, um, so I assume that this was done without Peter's approval. Yes, this yes. was done without Peter's approval. Yeah, well, it wasn't actually done. No one's done the, <laughs> uh, but uh, but the the idea. Schrodinger said, "Okay, you can imagine setting this up mm-hmm. now." What's going on with the cat before you open the box? Mm-hmm. So the standard answer to that you know, according to the Copenhagen interpretation is something along the lines of don't ask that question. Mm-hmm. You can't see what's going on inside the box. Uh, so it's in principle unobservable and uh, asking questions about things that are in principle unobservable is meaningless or beyond the scope of physics. Um, never mind that in principle unobservable is this sort of hopelessly vague concept that you mm-hmm. cannot firm up. But putting that aside, uh, that's what the Copenhagen people say. Um, Schrodinger said, sure, Fine, maybe that's the way atoms work, but that's not how cats work. Mm-hmm. Cats can't be in an indeterminate state. They're dead or they're alive. Mm-hmm. When I, if I open the box and find that the cat is dead, then the moment before I open the box, the cat was also dead, or at least it was extremely close to death. It was mm-hmm. dying. Uh, and if I open the box and find that it's alive, it was alive before I opened the box. Mm-hmm. And if our best physical theory of the world can't, allow us to say things like that, then the theory is incomplete. It's not wrong. There's Mm -hmm. just something missing. Mm -hmm. Um, And most physicists of the time did not agree with Schrodinger about this. Right. But, uh, but he was right. And it has to, (laughs) it was, he was right. Um, And there's a, there's a a whole, I mean, first the 20th century seemed to say, if you can't measure it, you can't know it, that that kind of idea. Mm -hmm. Um, So, we have a problem which they've raised quite often, um, which is that your observation changes the reality, how you observe it. Now, most people in this room are fairly responsible individuals, it seems to me. So they would all want to know if, if by my, each of my observations I change reality, I should be careful what I go around <laughs> observing, right? So, so, so I guess uh, to go into that a little bit of how that, that sort of theory affected this analysis of quantum mechanics a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's quantum physics certainly tells us that, you know, when you make an observation of something, you can have some impact on it. But, um, but, you know, some 
the Copenhagen interpretation kind of goes beyond that and says, no, you know, when you observe something, you are bringing it about, you are bringing it into existence by, by the act of opening the box, you force the cat into a state of aliveness or deadness. This is not true. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it is true that the quantum world is a delicate place mm -hmm. and that, you know, by observing very small objects, we can affect them. Mm. Um, it is true that there are some fundamental limits on how well we can observe and measure certain properties of very small objects. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not as if, you know, uh, by you going out into the street you create all of the traffic that is there in the street or you know, <laughs> by, by observing the rings of Saturn, the rings of Saturn have popped into existence just in time for you to see them. Like, yeah. um, and, and it's also, you know, certainly not the case, despite the fact, you know, uh, that some new age gurus would tell you otherwise that you know, <laughs> what that quantum mechanics tells you that, you know, what you want to see in the world is what will happen. That's, um, so I, I particularly liked your little slam on Deepak Chopra in your book. I was like, well, <laughs> he had it coming. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there are two elements. So let's go a little bit more into this. There's something they call the measurement problem. Yeah. Okay. So that which which really occupied people for a long time, and it occupied the people who tried to solve the problems a long time. Maybe a little bit of an idea about what that what's the basis of that? Because we'll get back to that in the second part of what we're doing. Sure. So. Um, Part of the reason why people, you know, thought that measurement or that, that human observation played a fundamental role in quantum physics is, um, is this thing called the measurement problem. So basically you have, there are two fundamental rules for how stuff behaves in quantum physics. Um, one of them is this very nice orderly equation called the Schrodinger equation, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, doesn't really matter what it is. The point is it's this nice, smooth, deterministic thing called the partial differential equation. And it's very pretty if you're inclined to that sort of beauty. Um, <laughs> uh, and the second thing is this thing called the Born rule or the collapse rule. It goes by a few different names. Um, and it is ugly. Um, various <laughs> physicists have called it a scar on an otherwise beautiful theory. Um, but, but more to the point, uh, not only is it ugly, it's in direct contradiction to the Schrodinger equation. Mm -hmm. So we need to know when to use the Schrodinger equation and when to use this Born rule, uh, because they can't both be correct at the same time, uh, for the same system. They, they, you have to pick and choose and you do need both of them in order to use quantum physics to make accurate predictions, which it does. Quantum physics makes phenomenally accurate predictions, um, more accurate than any other scientific theory that we've ever devised. Um, so the measurement problem is fundamentally, okay, when do we use one of these and when do we use the other? And the reason it's called the measurement problem is the standard answer to when do we use one versus the other is, oh, we use the Schrodinger equation when we're not making a measurement, and then we use the Born rule when we are making a measurement. <laughs> and the problem, of course, is that the word measurement is hopelessly ill-defined. You know, what counts as a measurement? Uh, 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 was, uh, was the universe waiting for... Uh, uh, billions and billions of years for the first people to come along to make a measurement. And then all of a sudden the Born rule applied for the first time. Yeah. Uh, uh, did it, uh, or, or did it need, you know, a better qualified observer? Uh, you know, maybe someone with a PhD. Um, <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I, you sound a little skeptical about I, this. I am skeptical. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, cause you know, you'll get, you'll get different answers, yeah. uh, depending on who you ask. You know, some, there are some physicists who have bit the bullet and say, no, you know, it's consciousness. When a conscious human looks, mm -hmm. um, that's when, that's when you apply the Born rule and otherwise the Schrodinger equation applies, uh, to which the response is, okay, um, why? <laughs> and what evidence do you have that that's true by what by virtue of what properties can conscious beings do this and other beings can't why do you think that um and how do you know it's all of us how do you know it's not just you you know they, they, <laughs> it seems to it, it doesn't go anywhere good um and what about orangutans r right exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> um uh and there's and there doesn't seem to be any compelling reason to put that into the theory um uh another answer that used to be uh, favored among many physicists and is no longer favored, uh, was to say, oh, um, when a big object 
mm-hmm. meaning lots and lots of atoms, interacts with a small object, very few atoms. That's when a measurement happens. But that doesn't seem to be the case because that would imply that there's some limit, some you know threshold beyond which quantum physics doesn't really work the same way mm-hmm. uh, for sufficiently big objects. And... W- you know, there have been a great deal of experimental efforts to try to find any such limit. and No one's ever found it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it, you know, at this point, I don't know of any physicists who or very few physicists who believe that there's some sort of threshold like that. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned in your book, you know, that they say, well, large objects and small objects, but no one's ever defined what's large and what's yeah, small. Exactly, it's a kind yeah. of mm-hmm. fairly weak weakness yeah. in the idea. And so so we're sort of left with this position of, oh, OK. Uh, we have this theory, we know how to use it, but there's a problem at the heart of it. It doesn't prevent us from using it, mm-hmm. um, but it does mean that there's some work left to do yeah. before we fully understand what's going on, some way of solving this problem. Now, about yeah. half your book is, is, is history, the history of the mm-hmm. century and the different individuals that were involved who then said, uh, this doesn't make me feel comfortable, these kind of answers, the Copenhagen <laughs> interpretation, and, and went against it. And, and, and most of them paid in their academic careers or whatever for yeah. having gone against it. So uh, very, very interesting stories for those who haven't uh, read the book. But how about one of those stories for, for everybody who's here? Well, um, if, if I only get to pick one of those stories, the, the, the choice is obvious. Um, <laughs> there was a guy named David Bohm who got... Um, the shortest end of the stick of uh, any physicist that I'm aware of in in the U.S. in the in the second half of the 20th century, um, he uh, was a student of Robert Oppenheimer at Berkeley, uh, just across the bay. Um, and while he was in graduate school there, um, he he made the uh, grave error for his future career because uh, this was uh, in the in the early 1940s, during World War II, um, he briefly went to a couple of uh, Berkeley Communist Party meetings, um, which, uh, you know, got him on the radar of army intelligence and whatnot, because his PhD advisor was running, you know, the Manhattan Project. Mm -hmm. Um, And... That would uh, do it. Yeah, that would do it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And they, they determined that he was, in fact, you know, not a spy. Uh, but it didn't matter, as it turned out, because in about 10 years after all of that happened, uh, when he was uh, an assistant professor at Princeton, um, he was called up before the House on american Activities Committee um, and called to testify in, in front of uh, a, a panel that was chaired by uh, uh, Congressman Richard M. Nixon. Uh, and uh, he he pled the First and Fifth Amendments, mm-hmm. saying that he, he didn't have to tell them anything. Uh, and then he was uh, arrested and held in contempt of Congress. Mm. And uh, he was eventually cleared of all charges because it turns out that there is a First and a Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution. <laughs> um, but by that time, uh, he had been blacklisted. Mm-hmm. Um, and the truly phenomenal thing is that while he was waiting for his day in court, so right in the middle of all of this in 1951, um, he came up with an entirely new way of thinking about quantum physics. He, he independently rediscovered a set of ideas that had been pioneered by one of the uh, one of the other sort of founders of quantum physics, uh, Louis de Broglie. Um, he, Bohm rediscovered that work and then sort of finished the job that Du Bois had started and, uh, just came up with a way of solving the measurement problem. Uh, I don't think it is the way of solving the measurement problem, but I think it is one of, you know, many options available that is better than saying, shut up. That's a dumb question. (laughs) Um, and so he, he put this work together at the same time that, you know, he was going through this, you know, personal and professional struggle. Mm. Um, and after his name was cleared, he was blacklisted. He was um, officially Princeton declined to renew his appointment, but that was a formality. So really, he was fired. Mm-hmm. Um, and despite having letters of recommendation from Robert Oppenheimer and Albert Einstein, uh, <laughs> he could not find work anywhere in the United States or Europe and eventually took a job in Brazil, mm-hmm. uh, which at the time was not a great place to do physics. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, For those of you who are relying on recommendation letters, you know, yeah. tell that story to your children. <laughs> you know, 
You can't get anywhere with Oppenheimer and Einstein. You know, there's a, there's a limit to what a recommendation letter can do for you. Yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, he got down to Brazil. Um, the American consulate there confiscated his passport uh, illegally after he showed up. And so when his papers on his new ideas about quantum physics were published early the next year, uh, he couldn't travel and give talks in support of his ideas. Mm. And people were saying things like, well, you know, um, this is obviously wrong. This can't be correct. Um, you know, this is, uh, this is the same idea that Du Bois came up with 25 years ago, and we know that it's wrong. Uh, and, uh, and other people said, well, you know, uh, uh, he's, he's a communist. He, he couldn't be right. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, uh, his, his career suffered quite, quite badly um, for both his political convictions and his scientific convictions. Yeah. It's nice to know that scientists are human after all. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's great. And, and uh, that's a, a, a glimpse into some of the ideas <laughs> about quantum mechanics. And now we're going to go to the big question, what is real? And we're going to switch to uh, a, another theory, mm-hmm. uh, a much older theory, uh, that's also very, been very successful from a theoretical point of view, although it also had like 1,800 years in the, in the dog shed um, <laughs> where people didn't pay attention to, and that's the atomic theory by Democritus. Mm, yeah. Okay? So uh, my first question about this, the, the, the basic idea behind the atomic theory is that because we have a world with discrete objects in it, there must be some unit of discreteness. That's, and there's, there's elements to it, but that's the basic idea behind it. It's just, there were no experiments done, obviously, but they, they proposed that it would be very, very tiny discreteness. Now, uh, Plato and Aristotle and some of the other top philosophers did not like this idea because it went against some of their ideas. So they're pretty much the same sort of situation. Yeah. Um, uh, but what I, the question that I have for you about it is, uh, to start, in the 20th century, the atom was discovered, this, huh. this atom for the thing. Do you think that the atom that was discovered in the 20th century is the same atom as the atom that was uh, proposed in theory? In other words, is the, is the practice here the same atom as the other? Yeah. So I have a short answer and a long answer. Okay, good. Can you give me the short answer first? Yeah. No. Okay. <laughs> good. Uh, okay, so here's the long answer. Um, so my, my understanding, and, and uh, this is from one course on ancient Greek philosophy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, so take this with a grain of salt. I'm not an expert on ancient Greek philosophy. Um, but my, my understanding is that Democritus and Leucippus came up with this idea of the atom in, you know, um, pre-Socratic uh, Greek philosophy um, as a kind of compromise. Mm-hmm. Um, there was Parmenides, Mm-hmm. who was saying everything stays the same all the time, all change is an illusion, the universe is unchanging and static forever. Um, and then there was Heraclitus who said, no, everything is flux, everything is constantly changing, you cannot step into the same river twice, the river will have changed and you will have changed, uh, uh, all stability is merely an illusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Democritus came along and said, okay, look, you know, we don't need to fight, Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe you're both right. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe uh, there are these constant, unchanging, small things that lead that have constantly changing configurations, and those configurations lead to what we see in the world around us. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, it can kind of sound like uh, you have one person saying nothing stays the same. You have another person saying everything stays the same. And then you have a third person saying maybe there's a, a, a wide variety of small components called atoms which make up the world around us. And it's like, okay, one of these people is a time traveler. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it's it, it was more of a, a compromise between these two other positions. And in that sense, um, the atoms that we we know of today are absolutely not those atoms because atoms change all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, atoms can decay, atoms can fuse. Um, y- you can have different kinds of atoms that are of the same element, right? You can have different mm-hmm. isotopes, right? There's carbon 12 and carbon 13. They're both carbon. They're chemically identical. They're both stable. They won't decay. Um, but one of them is heavier than the other. Mm-hmm. Um, None of that, uh, I think, would have been acceptable to Democritus and company. Right. Um, the other thing is, you know, um, the atom that we know of today 
uh, sort of has this this strange history through the 19th century and into the 20th because it was really, you know, that modern atomic theory was really put together by chemists mm-hmm. by the middle of the 18 uh, by the middle of the 1800s. Uh, chemists were pretty well convinced. Yeah, you know, there are there are atoms, and and uh, they they seem to combine in certain ratios to form molecules. And uh, Mendeleev came up with a periodic table, I think, in the 1860s. And mm-hmm. uh, but, but by that point, everyone was already pretty well convinced. But among physicists, the subject was pretty well divisive until the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's my long answer. <laughs> Good. That was a great answer. So. So uh, let's dig a little deeper into this because sure. uh, the, 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 the theory is that it's indestructible, that the atom must be indestructible. And the whole point is if we're going to have discrete items and a buildup of, of discrete items, that there must be something that's indestructible, that doesn't have a void in it, which, they, of course, uh, the um, atoms uh, that we in the 20th century have called atoms do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, of course, they didn't ever say that, that the atoms are very tiny. They're exactly the level beneath molecules, you know, because they, they didn't have any knowledge of molecules or anything right, like that. Right. So the theory is there saying it's an indestructible object. Now, what would the characteristic trait of a particle that was indestructible be? It wouldn't exist? Oh. <laughs> I don't think we're, we're aware of any indestructible particle. Right. So, but it would seem to me that there's sort of three... Three uh, versions that if you, if you take a particle, if you just, let's, let's assume that marbles are indestructible for the, for the, for the moment. You know? <laughs> okay. And, and, and we go back to, to, to Newtonian physics for a second, and the marbles are, are hitting each other and so on and so forth. Now, the way that their momentum transfers can be one of basically three things. You can change to forward momentum. You can uh, have it, create, if it hits at the side, create spin. Mm-hmm. Or if it's small enough, the momentum goes inside the object and increases its heat, I mean, the in, internal motion. So those are the basic, basic three things. So you would think that an object that's indestructible, and as they proposed, there, there'd be no internal parts. Mm. So if there are no internal parts, that would mean that there could be no heat. There were, you, couldn't, you couldn't increase the, the internal motion of an object that has no internal objects. And so, so what would happen if you, if you had an indestructible object, it would seem to me one of the characteristic traits was that you, it, it couldn't heat up at all, that there was no such thing as heat, that all the momentum that, that was transferred to it would either be in spin or in forward momentum. Well, I mean, when you look at, uh, if you look at the air molecules in this room mm-hmm. and you, you zoom way in on one of them, um, it's difficult to talk about the temperature of a single molecule. Mm-hmm. Um, it's even harder to talk about the temperature of a single uh, subatomic particle. So in that sense, you're right. But, you know, um, just because a property is emergent doesn't mean uh, that it, it's not uh, important um, to, you know, our, our uh, understanding of the world around us. Yep. I, mean, I, I, guess, I guess I'm not sure I understand what you're driving at. Um, well, it seems to me that... Uh Let's go to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Okay. He basically, basically says that at, at the level of Planck's constant, yeah. that you cannot, you cannot uh, measure something. Either, either You can't measure precisely either its location or its, or its momentum, right? It's you, one you, or the other. One yeah, or the you, other, you have other make, has to give. Yeah, you have to make a choice. Right. Yeah. And so uh, it, it, it may be, to me, when I, I read that, I thought, well, that makes me a little bit more certain about something, not uncertain. Um, and the certainty is... That, that this object is behaving more like uh, an indestructible atom mm. because it, 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 it won't stay there and heat up. It will either move forward or spin or some other object if you put some momentum on it. But, but we can go back to that a little bit later. But it, it, okay. it seems to me it's, that it's, it was an indicator that the atom that the Democritus talked about could be quadrillions of times smaller than where we're at right now. I mean... You know, we, I, I don't think there are any physicists who think that our current best physical theories of the world are the last word on the subject. Yeah. You know, there, there are certainly um, – it, it certainly seems likely that there are um, – that there's some other way of understanding the particles that we know of now and possibly they're made of smaller constituents. At least some of them are. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, the other thing is – because energy and matter are interconvertible, mm-hmm. um, you know, one of one of the things that I think tells us that atoms and subatomic particles, as we know them now, don't really bear a resemblance to 
the stuff that Democritus and company were talking about, um, is that, you know, you can convert one kind of subatomic particle into another if you just sort of hit it hard enough. Right. Um, you know, if you, if you send, um, if you send a proton and an antiproton at each other, uh, at high enough speeds, uh, like they do in the LHC out in Switzerland, you can make a Higgs boson. Right. Um, uh, or you can make, uh, you can turn one proton and one antiproton into, you know, 20 protons and antiprotons mm -hmm. if you have them hit each other hard enough. You know, you can, you can just get a constellation of particles to come out of them, you know, just because you have them hitting each other hard enough. And, um, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily, it is true that protons have an internal structure. They're made of quarks, but you can perform the same kind of trick with electrons mm -hmm. and there's no indication that electrons have an internal structure. Mm -hmm. Um, so but they, sometimes they, uh, they, they go to uh, higher levels of energy with the input of a photon. Yeah. Um, with the, uh, well, they, they, not necessarily input in the way it's described. Yeah. It, it's not the electron itself. That I mean, the the electron gets more energy when it's within an atom. Like if you have an right. if you have an atom uh, and you shoot a photon at it, you can jump an electron up to a higher right. energy level. But uh, but if you just have a, an electron sort of floating free, right? It yeah, doesn't, doesn't it, have it doesn't that work action. that way. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I I think that these are just not the same beasts right. that Democritus and company were talking about. Well, um, what about if you take, you know, this, this interconvertibility of, yeah. of energy and mass and talk about that for a second? Sure. Um, we have a whole theory, of course, the, the wave particle theory about light. Yeah. Um, and to me, one of the interesting things about the whole idea about what's mass and what's energy and how we define it and everything mm -hmm. is, is maybe relative energy, relative velocity to what we can, what we're moving. Mm. I mean, if you talk about Einstein's relativity, you can you can see something from any position. Mm. If you if you sat on a photon, mm -hmm. could you you know a photon being expelled by the sun? Mm -hmm. Could you sit on that photon and look back at the sun? The sun is moving. If you pretend that you're at rest, the sun should be moving away from you with the speed of light, mm. right? Sort of. Sort of. Um, <laughs> I understand that it doesn't. The, 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 the transformation equations don't do that. But but from a if you if you forgot about the transformation equations, you forgot about this other approach, and we're trying to say what is real. Wh why is it that if you, you you can either be on the sun and see the photon left at a, uh, at the speed of light, uh -huh. or you could sit on the photon and say the sun left you at the speed of light? Well, there's no you know relativity says that there's no universal rest frame. Right. You know, that that that. that we sort of all can say, oh, I'm at rest and you're the one who's moving. Right. Um, the reason I, I sort of said that you were sort of right about, you know, if you were sitting on a photon is, first of all, you know, you're made of mass. Mass can't be sent at the speed of light, um, you know, on pain of, um, you know, several different paradoxes and an infinite amount of energy. Um, but the other issue is that um, an object going at the speed of light is going at the speed of light in all reference frames. Um, so it's sort of the exception. If you were going at 99% of the speed of light um, and uh, and you were, you know, hurtling away from the sun at that speed, then, yeah, you'd look back at the sun and you'd see that the sun was, you know, you, you'd say you were at rest and the sun was moving away from you very, very close to the speed of light. Mm -hmm. But if you saw a photon passing you uh, that the sun had emitted, you'd say, oh, yeah, that's going at the speed of light. You right. wouldn't say it's going at 1% of the speed of light. Yeah. So, so and if you if you actually did sit on... You know, if you somehow could ride a photon, mm -hmm. um, time would stop. If you're going at the speed of light, time stops. Um, and so it, 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 you know, and everything is sort of in the same place at once. It's um, the, the, the equations get strange for going at the speed of light and they break for going faster than the speed of light. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, back to our program. So, so let's talk about that for a second, since we're going okay. after what is real. Sure, sure. I mean, my, just, just to be clear, 
My book is about quantum physics. <laughs> <laughs> I, relativity is wonderful, and I could talk about it all night. Um, but but yeah, this is not this is not um, what my book's about. But sure, let's talk about relativity. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so if you're it, relativity is based on having stopped absolute space, stop absolute um, um, time, time, yeah, and and made the speed of light an absolute based on the Mitchelson Morley experiments, right? mm-hmm. and using using that as part of the equation, then the mathematics does exactly what you said. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, this we're, this part of uh, the discussion is uh, not about quantum mechanics, but about yeah. about philosophy from ancient Greece. Okay, okay? <laughs> so so if sure. you if you if you look at that and you say. Um, we have an explanation, which is part of this theory, which is based upon these assumptions. And mm-hmm. in your book, you, you've said several times, the stories we tell yeah. about things keep us uh, confined within what's go- uh, confined to some extent about what's going on. And we have this very nice, very effective two, two theories, quantum mechanics and relativity theory, mm-hmm. which don't quite merge, and we don't mm-hmm. quite know how to make them merge. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been worked on a long time, and each of them affect how we think about things. So let's just step back for a second and say, even if light is always traveling, and we can always take a photon at the speed of light, we know that light reacts relatively under different circumstances. For example, red shifting and blue shifting of the light sure. affects uh, the thing. We know that light is bent by water. We know, we know a lot of things. In fact, we know that the black holes stop light or stop time. Now, if you, if you, if you take the definition mm-hmm. of time and you attach it to the speed of light, mm-hmm. um, then that's your, that's your assumption. Then you can say that time moves backwards or time stops when, uh, for, for a photon. Everything is just there. That's the... Does that sound like a real explanation? Um, so I would say that the um, that the statement that you know light moves at the same speed in all reference frames, even though it's what Einstein used to get to relativity, is not really what's fundamental about relativity. Right. What relativity says is, hey, we thought um, we thought that the distances between events and the time between events, we thought that those things were you know, part of the fundamental structure of the world. And it turns out they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, but it then replaces those with something else that is part of the fundamental structure of the world. It says there is this combination of space and time called the space-time interval. Mm-hmm. So if you have two events, like, you know, um, me snapping the fingers on my left hand and snapping the fingers on my right hand, um, the distance between those events and the time between those events that changes depending on you know where you are and how fast you're moving, um, but the space-time interval between those two events, which is this you know mathematical equation that you know describes a, a distance between them in space-time, mm. um, that's absolute and mm. is is the same in all frames. And I mean Einstein originally wanted to call relativity uh, uh, invariant theory mm-hmm. um, because he thought you know the lesson of special relativity was that the things that are invariant in the world are not what we thought they were. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't saying there are no invariants. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, the, you know, given that statement about, okay, this is the structure of the world, um, then these statements about, okay, this is this is what happens with an object that's moving at the speed of light, these things start to make more sense. Um, mm. The other thing I'll say is... Um, no one ever said that, you know, light always moves at the speed of light. Light in a vacuum mm-hmm. moves at the speed of light in a vacuum, and that's the crucial speed at work in relativity. Light moves at different speeds in different substances, and that's why glass and water and, and other substances can bend light. It's precisely because light goes more slowly through glass than it does through air that light bends mm-hmm. when it hits an interface between glass and air. Um, so, you know, there's nothing special about light except the fact that, you know, it's massless and relativity demands that massless things move at the speed of light, mm-hmm. um, when they're in a vacuum. Um, so, so if it's, if yeah. it's, if it's massless, but mass and energy can be converted to each other. Sure. But they're not the same thing, but they're not the same thing. Yeah. So you can turn photons into mass if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can turn mass into photons if you want. Okay. Yeah. All right. So uh, 
to one other part of, of uh, the theory for Einstein about this was uh, the, the bending of the starlight around the sunshine yeah. in 1919, this experiment mm-hmm. that, that gave a lot of support to his theory. Mm-hmm. If, if photons were particulate, you know, if you just took the particulate part of the wave particle theory mm-hmm. um, and were affected by the um, acceleration of the sun, the gravity of the sun, however you want to describe it, um, wouldn't that, if they came close enough, wouldn't that bend them? Although they're very tiny, wouldn't that bend them as well? Yes. Yeah. If you, if you, have, if you forget Einstein's general relativity mm-hmm. and you just say, okay, let's pretend that Newton was right about gravity, mm-hmm. um, but let's pretend Newton was wrong about light because right. Newton said that light was a wave. But if we say, no, light's made of particles and these are little particles that have mass, they don't, but let's say that they do. Mm-hmm. Um, then, yeah, you would expect to see light bent a particular amount by, you know, passing near some heavy object like the sun. Um, general relativity also says that it bends. Mm-hmm. It says that it bends twice as far. Twice as far. So the, yeah. so the difference is not that light bends in general relativity and doesn't in Newtonian physics. It's the amount that it bends by. Okay. Yeah. Great. All right. Um, who would like to ask questions about quantum mechanics? <laughs> Thank you. So I thought one of the really amazing things I thought in the book was the experimental results for uh, Bell's theorem. Because this is like um, we didn't know what universe we lived in until we had the results from from the Bell's theorem that said it's this way. So can you give us any update on more uh, testing of Bell's theorem? Uh, Sure. Yeah. So so just to bring everyone, uh, everyone up to speed for, you know, people who haven't read my book. Um, uh, so Bell's theorem basically says that if quantum physics makes accurate predictions about the world in a certain experimental setup, then either subatomic particles can, under certain circumstances, influence each other instantaneously, faster than the speed of light at, at great distances, or something even stranger than that is going on. <laughs> um, that there's obviously a more detailed statement of that um, of that theorem in my book um, and in Bell's papers. Um, but that's that's the gist of it. Uh, and when that experimental setup that Bell proposed was actually you know put together and the experiment was performed. Um, which was actually also done over at Berkeley for the first time um, back in. I think 71 was the first experiment. It was done by uh, John Clauser and um, Stuart Friedman. Um, so they found that the predictions of quantum mechanics were correct, which meant that something truly strange was going on. A uh, second generation of those experiments was started by Alain Aspey in France in the 1980s. He also found that quantum mechanics was correct. And a third generation of those experiments started in the mid-90s and are ongoing to today. And at this point, uh, every single experiment done to test Bell's theorem has come out in favor of quantum mechanics. So either you have, you know, what Einstein called spooky action at a distance, and he meant that pejoratively, um, (laughs) or uh, something even stranger is going on in the world around us. Uh, So whatever quantum physics is telling us about the world, um, it's nothing familiar. But there's a difference between the unfamiliar and, you know, just dismissing questions about it. Yeah. Is that the entanglement? Yes, entanglement. That's right. Yeah. Thank you. I enjoyed the book very much. Uh, Thank I was you. confused by one thing in Chapter 6. Sure. You're talking about the Everett's... Only video. one thing? Yeah. That, that, is, that is impressive. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very good reader. At least one thing. <laughs> well, I, I, um, I didn't in, think it was that good of a writer. Discussing Everett's <laughs> many worlds interpretation. Yeah. And you paraphrase him. I believe you're paraphrasing him. When you say, and the Schrodinger equation dictates that each branch will carry on independently of the others with hardly any interaction between branches. Ah. What do you mean by hardly? Yeah. <laughs> and what are the implications of that? That's a good question. So, um, so you're talking about the, the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, which is um, subject of chapter six in my book, um, like you said. So... Basically, the hardly is in there to account for precisely the strange quantum phenomena like interference that we see in things like the double slit experiment. Because in the many worlds interpretation of quantum physics, 
um, the way that you account for um, interference in that kind of experiment, which, um, and, and for those of you who haven't read the book, I, I'm not going to go into it. I'm sorry, but I do explain that in chapter five of my book. Um, uh, the way that you account for things like the interference pattern in the double slit experiment is you say, oh, uh, you have, uh, you know, say that you have one electron going through the double slit. Uh, well, it is interfering with copies of itself in different universes. And that's causing the interference. So according to the many worlds interpretation, unless you're doing some sort of very delicate quantum mechanical experiment, you're not going to see any interference between the worlds. So that's what the hardly is about. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's got that, right? <laughs> I, um, the, the thing you described with the Copenhagen doctrine was, was kind of... Um, I wondered why, after centuries of science trying to get to the essence of things, mm. why do you think, kind of culturally, after that, we seem to have turned our back on that and just got into describing things? That's a very good question, and I am not sure that I have a great answer. Um, I think that that part of the answer is exactly what you alluded to in the question, that it, that it has something to do with... Um, the culture that, that we're all embedded in, um, you know, science is a human activity. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. Um, and so, you know, the wider world of human culture can affect science just the same way that scientific discoveries and theories can affect the wider world of human culture. Um, there is this, um, thing in scientific, uh, or in, in science and technology studies called the Foreman thesis, um, uh, which basically makes the claim that the this sort of attitude toward the proper role of science that uh, that many of the founders of quantum mechanics had in the 1920s came out of particular peculiar cultural phenomena that were sort of in the air of 1920s Weimar Germany. Um, I think that that is not wrong, but I also think it's not the whole story. Um, uh, I mean, there's, you know, I, it, some of it is actually due to, you know, that like anything that uh, happens, you know, on a large scale involving a large number of people like this, um, there's not going to be a single simple answer. There's just going to be a bunch of, rather complicated answers that are contributing factors, right? Um, so another contributing factor is actually, strangely, that Einstein's theory of special relativity was named relativity because that led to different things about the theory being emphasized and was in part inspiration for both the logical positivists and um, the, the founders of quantum physics like Heisenberg and Bohr. And uh, when Einstein started complaining about precisely these features of quantum physics, uh, some of these people, you know, asked him, but, you know, isn't this exactly what you did with relativity? And his reply was, well, yeah, but a good joke shouldn't be repeated twice. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he didn't take that stuff too seriously. Uh, you know, he thought there is a world out there and the job of physics is to describe that world. Um, again, you know, he, he wanted to call relativity invariant theory, which gives a very different sort of set of, um, associations in the world of ideas. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't have a good answer. I'm, I'm very strongly tempted to say that world war one has something to do with it, but I can't get more specific than that. So if it is possible for things to communicate instantaneously does that mean that information can travel instantaneously that is faster than the speed of light unfortunately not <laughs> um so so the reason i say unfortunately it's, it's a great question uh and the reason i say unfortunately not is that you know if we could send information faster than the speed of light um then we could construct a device which has maybe my favorite name in the entire in like the entire realm of um, non-existent technology. Uh, we could construct a tachyonic anti-telephone. Uh, <laughs> tachyonic meaning faster than the speed of light. Anti-telephone because it would allow you to receive a message before it was sent. 
Um, <laughs> so, uh, because it turns out that sending signals faster than the speed of light, according to relativity, is tantamount to sending signals back in time. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe, maybe some future theory of physics and future technology will allow us to, you know, overcome this, this barrier of light speed, although I'm skeptical. But it is certainly true that quantum entanglement, this phenomenon of, you know, instantaneous influence at a distance between, you know, particles in quantum physics, uh, that cannot be used to send signals faster than the speed of light. Uh, there is a proof, um, uh, which goes by various names, but, uh, but my favorite name for it is the Nobel telephone theorem. <laughs> um, <laughs> saying you can't take advantage of Bell's theorem to build a telephone network. Um, <laughs> so, uh, it was, it was an open question for a while. And at one point, um, well, more than one point, but most famously, uh, a couple of physicists, again, here in the Bay Area, uh, thought they had found a way around the Nobel telephone theorem. Uh, and that prompted Zurek and uh, I don't remember who the other guy was, a couple of physicists uh, to come up with uh, uh, this this very cleverly named theorem called the quantum no cloning theorem, mm -hmm. which uh, basically use that as a supplement to the Nobel telephone theorem and you you close the door on it. So so it's it's mathematically and physically not possible to use quantum entanglement to do that. Again, that doesn't mean that it can't be done. You just can't do it that way, and you need to come up with an entirely new theory of physics to account for it. So this was named the Nobel Telephone Theory. Was he angling for a Nobel Prize? No, 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 no. It was just, it was, <laughs> no, I, yeah. <laughs> um, so is there, any, is there any sort of feeling that, that dark energy and dark matter could have any bearing on answering any of these questions about the the wave collapse and and the or are, is that is that on the radar or anything people are thinking um i kind of want to say no with an asterisk on it um so the the asterisk is this um no one i don't think anyone thinks that dark energy or dark matter directly solve the quantum measurement problem um but and, and I talk about this in, in a little more detail at the end of my book. Um, dark energy and dark matter certainly do point the way toward things we don't understand about the world, right? The, the, the word dark in cosmology basically just is a stand-in for the word ignorance, right? You know, these, these <laughs> a kind of energy and a kind of matter that we know are out there, but we don't really understand them. And uh, we don't have a good fundamental physical theory to account for them which means that they are hints toward the next theory, uh, which is part of why, you know, we find them so interesting as physicists. And whatever the next theory is, it seems likely that that will have some bearing on the solution to the measurement problem. So, um, so while dark energy and dark matter don't, you know, sort of themselves provide a solution to this and, and they don't, um, you know, they don't, have a direct bearing on a solution to the measurement problem, it seems likely that they are part of what could point us toward a solution to the measurement problem. Um, are they thought to be here in the room right now? Dark energy and dark matter, are they thought to be in the room here with us right now? Um, yeah. Yeah, the... the, the the caveat on that is we don't we still don't have a full understanding of them, but uh, given our best current theory of dark energy and our best current theory of dark matter, and we have a better handle on dark matter than we do on dark energy, um, then yeah, they're they're both here in the room right now. Uh, it's just that you know they don't interact with things made of atoms, except through gravity, and there's not very much of it here in the room. So, yeah. Uh since you we're talking about what is real, yeah. Question I have is: Do you believe that there is such a thing as objective truth, then objective reality? <laughs> because because it goes to the heart of what's real, right? Yeah. And if everything is subjective, it, yeah. I mean, in fact, you look at something like Gödel. You know, mm -hmm. you need an infinite number of axioms to have anything to exist, mm. which means that you can subjectively select any set of axioms and form a theory, even in something like mathematics. But what do you think? Do you think 
you know, if we, if we say that there is no such thing as objective truth, then you sort of come back to logical positivism, don't you? Because you say, you know, the only truth that matters is what we can perceive or what we can subjectively, mm. at least in some sense, you know, even with all our logic and all can conceive, right? So you're going for the small questions. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think the second part of his question is give details. Yes. <laughs> no, this is a great question. Um, you know, I was, I was before, before my book came out, I was talking with my editor and we were tossing around possible names for the book. And we, we thought about the name, what is real. And we, we decided, okay, that's a good name, but you know, uh, it's a good name for the book. And I'm glad that that's the name of my book, but, um, but it's also, you know, I knew that it was going to lead to questions like this. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm very tempted to give a bad answer to your question and say, and say, well, it really depends on what you mean by objective. Right. Um, so, yeah, I know. I know. I'm not going to stop there. I um, so if by objective you mean a world that um, that, you know, doesn't care whether or not we're looking at it, it has the same properties no matter what, then I'd say, no, quantum physics, there's there's this um, there's several results uh, in quantum physics that you know, make it very clear, no, when we look at the world, we have some, you know, impact on it um, just because, you know, the world uh, is, is a jumpy and sensitive thing. Um, but if by objective you mean if, if I, you know, snap my fingers and uh, everyone in, in the world, including myself, you know, sort of disappeared Thanos style, um, then would there still be stuff, you know, at least resembling the world as we see it around us now? Yeah, there would be, you know, um, uh, uh, that, that bookshelf out there would be here whether or not there was anyone alive. Right. Um, now as for Gödel, yeah, one way of interpreting what Gödel says is that, um, that you need an infinite number of axioms or that there's an infinite number of different, um, you know, possible formal systems for, you know, giving you the, the logical underpinnings for mathematics. Um, but another way of understanding what Gödel achieved is, is to say, oh, Gödel showed that mathematical truth and the concept of formal logical proof are not the same. Um, because Gödel showed that there are things that are true that you're not going to be able to access with proofs. Um, that doesn't mean that mathematics has no logical foundation. Uh, it just means that you can't axiomatize it in that way. Um, there is this movement in philosophy that I think of as being somewhat somewhat related to that idea, although I, I don't know if I can really say that it's a real close relationship, but um, it's called naturalism. And it's this idea that, okay, look, you know, we spent a long time looking for logical first principles to build up a, an idea of the world. Um, they ain't out there. Um, if we want to have an understanding of the world, what we, you know, the best that we can do um, to, to steal an analogy from Otto Neurath, one of the logical positivists actually, um, is to construct a boat while we are at sea. <laughs> we are in a world that we never made. Um, and if we can come up with a way of understanding it, that, that holds together and makes sense, um, and, and seems to account for the things that we see around us, um, that account must contain some kernel of truth. Otherwise it would be a phenomenal miracle. Um, that, you know, that such an account actually yields accurate predictions about the things that happen around us. Um, do I think that the fundamental nature, uh, do, do I think that our best physical theories reveal the fundamental nature of the world and that the world has a fundamental nature? Uh, no, and maybe, 
respectively. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but I, I do think that, and, and I mean this in the vaguest sense possible, <laughs> <laughs> I do think that there is stuff. And that stuff, yeah, and that's... Actually, I think that's a, that's a really good answer in a way. My, my point is if, if there was some sentient being somewhere else in the universe mm-hmm. or whatever, would they come up with, would they come up with a, any semblance of the same reality? Mm. I mean, they might because there's something really objectively there, but we don't know. When I'm, so, yeah. Oh, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Continue. Yeah. I mean, just, just thinking about the fact that, uh, you know, even our logic, which is, yeah. you know, at some point, you know, we, we hold logic to be the ultimate arbiter of what, what we can prove. Even that may be a subjective thing, in a, in a sense. Uh, yeah, I am very tempted to say, well, there's, there's a different person in this room named Adam who's a better person to ask that question to, uh, <laughs> who's sitting a few rows behind you. But um, <laughs> this is what he spends his time thinking about. But um, putting that aside, because uh, I don't want to put him on the spot, um, uh, I think that perception is a strange and funny and powerful thing. Um, and there are okay i'm going to i'm going to take what seems to be a sharp left turn here um do you know how cuckoo birds work um yeah so they they unless i've got this completely wrong i'm not a biologist um their reproductive strategy is to put their eggs into the nests of other birds um, and then their eggs hatch first and kick the other eggs or the other, you know, baby birds out of the nest. And the strange thing is that the, you know, the bird, the, the parent bird or birds who were taking care of that nest continue to feed the cuckoo bird, um, even though it doesn't look anything like the baby birds of their own species. Um, and this sort of suggests that there's something in the brain of, of birds um, that says, oh, if there is a pink squeaking thing in my nest, give it food. It must be my kid. Um, which suggests that the cuckoo bird is sort of missing a lot, right? <laughs> um, and then the scary question is, okay, what are we missing? Because um, we're not that different from birds. Um, uh, you know, we're all vertebrates. Um, so, so do I think that... And I mean, you know, one possible answer as well, what we're missing is that there's dark energy and dark matter in the room right now, right? Um, uh, We we don't have the ability to to perceive those things or or sense them. Um, Do I think that there's more like that? There could be. Um, But I also think that, you know, the the question is a little bit like the old, you know, uh, story about, you know, the the, the people with blindfolds on who are touching different parts of an elephant, right? Right. None of those people are wrong, right? We've got hold of one part of the elephant. We might not ever get hold of anything more than its trunk. Um, But that doesn't mean it doesn't have a trunk. Uh, Hi. Uh, Thank you for writing the book. It was fantastic. Thank you. Um, I wish I had a question that could make you talk for an hour more like the last (laughs) one. (laughs) Not allowed. Uh, I know. Sorry. (laughs) Um, Mine was a little more specific. Um, In... Your talk about the different interpretations when you're talking the Copenhagen or many worlds or the pilot wave. Um, when you talked about the many worlds, I was a little bit confused just on one little part when you said that it that one of the issues with it might be that it leads to mind body dualism. Ah, yeah. and I and I did not understand how that could lead to that. Yeah. So so this is <laughs> yeah this this is this is not an argument that. I that that like I came up with it's an argument from a guy named David Albert who's a philosopher of physics at, at Columbia. Um, uh, oh, and I yeah, and I quote him in the book. That's right. Yeah. So so yeah. So he um, he has this paper where he says, okay, look, you know, one way that you might think about the many worlds interpretation, and one way that that you know advocates of the many or some advocates of the many worlds interpretation have talked about it is they've said, okay. Um, you know, in the many worlds interpretation, the answer to the measurement problem is uh, we always use the Schrodinger equation. That's the fundamental equation. And so the real problem is, okay, then why do we need the other one? Why do we need the Born rule? And because uh, the Schrodinger equation is completely deterministic, but the predictions of quantum physics are probabilistic. Where does the probability come from? Um, one 
possible answer that you could give if you're a many worlds person, um, which to be clear, I'm not. I think it's plausible, but I, I, I'm not, you know, sold on it. Um, but one possible answer that some advocates of the many worlds interpretation have given uh, is to say, oh, well, um, there's this giant multiverse, but we don't know where we are in it because there's lots of copies of us. And so the probability comes in because we don't know where we are. And so there's some probability that we're in some part of it or some other part of it, um, which is already like a mind bending idea. But um, but yeah, I mean, and, and this is what I talk about in, in chapter 11 of the book. Um, the the problem that this dualism issue is, um, is that if you say, OK, that's where the probability comes from, um, then you're sort of, you know, what what Albert says, and I'm probably mangling this badly, but he, he says, you know, it's hard to make sense of that position without saying something like, oh, so what you're saying is you have an immaterial soul that doesn't obey the laws of physics. And when when you split into two copies of yourself or multiple copies of yourself, as the many worlds interpretation says that you will, uh, that disembodied consciousness only follows one path through the branching multiverse. And so you're saying that, you know, this this probabilistic rule comes from your uncertainty about the location of this, you know, soul that you have. Um now, again, I, th I, first of all, I'm not a dualist. <laughs> Second, um, I've probably mangled Albert's position quite badly. Third, I've probably mangled the position of the many worlds people that he was responding to quite badly. <laughs> <laughs> and we have time for one more question. My question is, as the scientists are on their hunt for new particles, do you think we could find that particle that's irreducible and unchangeable? Um. Irreducible in the sense that it's not made of some other thing. Um, you could argue that we already have that. There's no evidence for any sort of internal structure for an electron, for example. Unchangeable? Nah. Um, you know, if we want to go back to Parmenides and Heraclitus, um, I'm totally on Team Heraclitus. Uh, <laughs> everything changes. You know, everything, everything can be changed and will ultimately change. Electrons are not made of anything else. But if you wait long enough, um, well, if you if you throw an electron at the wall hard enough, it'll turn into something else. But um, but also if if you wait long enough, our best theories tell us that the electron is stable, but on very long time scales. There has to be some theory of quantum gravity, which suggests that on very, very long timescales, if you had an electron that was just sort of sitting somewhere, it would eventually turn into a black hole and then radiate away into other kinds of particles. Um, you know, it, there there is nothing in the universe that is not subject to flux and change. Um, and our best physical theories of the universe might change, but I don't think that that fact about them is going to change. A string theory says the same kind of thing. Yeah. And also might not be true. Probably true, but might not be true. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you very much. That was just great. Thank you. And, and tonight, well, all the good questions and everything, perhaps uh, the reports of philosophy's death has been greatly exaggerated. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Um, and tonight... Also, is a, another uh, event in the Commonwealth Club's 117th uh, year of enlightened discussion. Thank you very much for coming, and thank you very much, Adam, for sharing with us. Thank you.